as we uh, dive into this study, the third week on the book of 1 John. I've titled this message, The Love of the Advocate, and I'll start right off giving you the big idea, and we'll return to it. The big idea that is that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate and propitiation. And if you don't know what propitiation means now, I'm hoping that by the time you leave today, you will know what that means. And the three uh, kind of points that we have is believers have an advocate in Jesus. Believers avoid God's wrath in Jesus. And believers keep the commandments of Jesus. The relationship between the Christian and sin would be difficult to understand if it weren't for the fact that Scripture explains it pretty clearly. On the one hand, the one who has put saving faith in Jesus has had their sin covered, removed, the price paid for it, and that includes sins of the past, sins of the present, and sins of the future. On the other hand, Christians still sin. Not only sometimes, but regularly, and the one with saving faith in Christ, though, has a new nature, according to Scripture. They are no longer in the flesh, but of the Spirit. However, despite having this new nature in Christ, the believer does indeed give in to their flesh at times. In those times, their salvation is still intact, but their current state of fellowship with the Lord and with other believers is harmed. And so we saw in 1 John chapter 1 that believers need to be careful to understand this problem. They aren't supposed to sin, yet they will. When they sin or live in the darkness or walk in the darkness, their fellowship with God, according to John, is diminished. In fact, John writes, if we continue in sin while we say we are in fellowship with God, we lie and do not practice the truth. And if we deny that we ever sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Either way, if a believer is involved in sin that is not being dealt with through confession and restoration with the Lord, this is a problem not only in our fellowship with God, but also with others in the family of God. So what happens then when the new nature of, the, of being in the Spirit is marred by sin well there's good news and that's what john in chapters one and two of this book shares with us first off if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and secondly we have an advocate jesus christ the righteous the advocate turns god's wrath away from us and restores our relationship with him. Additionally, we see proof of our knowing him is in the keeping of his commandments. And this morning, we're, not, we're going to explore a word that we mostly don't use in daily conversations. And that's the word propitiation. And we are going to find out why that word is now avoided by many preachers. But I think we need to embrace this word and fully understand it since it includes an understanding of the wrath of God, which is a concept which many people find offensive. 
So again, the big idea, Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate and propitiation. And believers have an advocate in Jesus. Believers avoid God's wrath in Jesus. And believers keep the commandments of Jesus. So I'm going to read mostly the the sermon is from chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. But I want to back up to chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll read it so that we see it all in context. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we pick up here and overlap a little bit with where we were last week. And the sermons are available online if you missed any. The first in this series was an introduction to the book of 1 John, and then we talked about the first five verses or so. And then last week we discussed the second half of chapter 1 uh, and, and into the first two verses actually of chapter 2. So this morning we continue to dive into this. Now, I do try to make each sermon make sense on its own. If it's the only one you ever heard, I hope it makes sense. But at the same time, it is a series where each sermon builds upon the previous ones. So if you have missed any, I recommend going to the website and listening, or if you prefer, there's, uh, you can search them out on iTunes podcasts as well. I think they still post there automatically each week. Again, big idea is Jesus Christ is the, Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate and propitiation. And the first main point here is that believers have an advocate in Jesus. Now to recap a bit of last week's sermon, John wants to be clear here that while acknowledging the fact that Christians do indeed sin, and as he's encouraging them in the reminder that when they do sin, if they will confess their sins, uh, then he will forgive and cleanse us from unrighteousness. At the same time, he's trying to be really clear and say, but I'm not saying you're supposed to sin here. Kind of like Paul says in Romans 6 when he says that we sin more so grace can abound. Certainly not. Now, if Christians could truly grasp this concept of confessing our sins and being forgiven and cleansed, so many people would be set free 
from the guilt and the shame the enemy of our souls tries to inflict as he reminds us of all our shortcomings, which are many. And so when you're hearing that thought that says, hey, you're still marred by sin, and if the evil one is trying to put that burden on you, remember that if you're truly in Christ, and if you have indeed confessed those sins, then you have been forgiven and cleansed. You are forgiven and cleansed. You will be forgiven and cleansed. And remember that we said confess uh, in the biblical sense is not simply, uh, yeah, I did it, but it's actually admitting that it's, it is sin. It's an agreement with God saying, yes, I agree with you, God, that it is sin and I'm guilty and I need your forgiveness. That's what confession means in the biblical sense, not just simply, yep, yeah, you caught me. And so while our bodies waste away from sin, as David recalls in Psalm 32, once we confess our sins, we are forgiven. And that's the end of it. Except for our flesh and the, and the enemy coming to try to convince us that's not the end of it. So those sins we are committed, that we committed while we were already believers, they don't undo our justification. But they are indeed changing the nature of our relationship with God since he cannot have fellowship with sin. And so our continually aware, being aware of and our quick confession of sin keeps us in good fellowship with him. So he, if we don't confess our sin, he may let us languish for a while in, in kind of a, a sad state of being... Uh, not really happy because in our heart we know we're not connected with God as we were. And so David said this. Uh, and after he, he said before he confessed, he was feeling anguish or sickness kind of. But after he acknowledged and agreed with God about his sin, uh, things changed. So let's look at that in Romans, or I mean in Psalm 32 verses 1 through 7. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. See, that's when he was in the unconfessed sin state. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, or for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, I acknowledged my sin to you. Here's the turnaround. I didn't, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, David says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So we can confess our sins and be forgiven. At the same time, though, John is really clear. He doesn't want Christians to take that freedom we have uh, from confession as a license to sin or to live in a state of sin. Because one evidence of someone's sincere faith is a desire to keep the commands of Jesus. So one living in willful sin without repentance is certainly 
at the least backslidden and possibly was never in God's grace to begin with because they're not obeying him. Now John says, to be clear about this, I'm not, I am writing so that you do not sin. I'm not writing just so you can sin and trust in the confession. I actually don't want you to sin. Please don't sin. So John is saying here. But if anyone does sin, so he's acknowledging it's going to happen, but, but don't do it, but it's going to probably happen. Then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, what is an advocate? Well, it's someone who pleads the case for another person. One who represents another for their good. In our world, an advocate, the quickest example we usually come up with is a lawyer. Um, I would say any government official should consider themselves to be an advocate for the good of those who serve and not their own well-being. A parent is an advocate for their children. Someone with medical power of attorney is an advocate for the one they represent. A doctor is an advocate. There's many more examples of this. But Jesus Christ the righteous is the advocate we look to when we sin. The righteousness part here is crucial. Jesus Christ the righteous. If he was not righteous, then his advocacy would be no better than anyone else's. But Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. And that is the key John is speaking of here. And if we are truly in Christ, the Bible teaches that he is our advocate even when we're off the path. If we are truly in him, he pleads our case continually before the Father. You can't have a better advocate than Jesus. Now, I'm going to quickly give some examples from Scripture of advocates or advocacy that we can see in Scripture. Um, sometimes you see the word used intercession. It's, a, it's pretty much a synonym, synonym word to it. It means the same thing. First, in Romans 8, we find some examples. First, that the Spirit intercedes or acts as an advocate when we don't know how to pray. And you'll probably remember this from our series in Romans about a year ago. I think we were in this chapter. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes, he is an advocate, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes, or acts as an advocate, for the saints, according to the will of God. Now that's pretty good news, if you're in Christ, to know that the Holy Spirit intercedes or acts as an advocate for us. But not only that, Jesus intercedes for the Christian, which Paul reminds the believers in Rome, and he says that means that no charge can be brought against the elect and that we cannot be separated from God because of the intercession or advocacy of Jesus Christ. So that says in Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we have been killed all the day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
our Lord, and you could put in parentheses, our righteous advocate. Another example of advocacy we see in Scripture is in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, where Jesus tells Simon Peter that Satan has, has uh, going to sift you like wheat, Peter. But Jesus gives this comfort to him, and he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. So Jesus prayed as an advocate for Peter. It's a good thing to have Jesus as your advocate. Peter did turn back to Jesus. And indeed, he strengthened the brothers just as Jesus commanded him to do. And then Paul tells Timothy, here's another example from Scripture, that he should intercede and pray for kings and those in high positions following the example of Jesus, who is the one mediator between God and men. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, he says there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men. And mediator is another word for advocate or intercessor between God and men. The man, Jesus uh, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So again, our big idea, Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate and our propitiation. So the next point is that believers avoid God's wrath in Jesus. Now we get to that word, okay, that <laughs> Probably most of your translations do have the word propitiation, but actually some translations have replaced the word propitiation with uh, sometimes expiation or, or possibly um, something different than that too. Uh, and so we'll get into that. But he is the propitiation for our sins, John says, and not, only for our, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there's a lot to discuss here just in verse 2. The term propitiation, first of all, what does it mean? And also, what does it mean that he was a propitiation for the sins of the whole world? And these are both challenging things to look at. And I'm sorry to say that many teachers of the Bible will avoid this because they would rather, rather than struggle with it, they would rather find something nice and neat to talk about. But I like the challenge of trying to understand Scripture myself and trying to explain it to others. So I'm going to give it a go. And I hope it's somewhat clear. But as I say to you often, you must remember that I am not infallible. But Scripture is infallible and without error. And you can trust the Word. So take what I teach and go. Search out what the Word says for yourself. And be like those Bereans who are more noble because they took what they heard and compared it to the perfect Word of God. So let's look at this word propitiation. Now, as I was working to figure out the best way to explain this, I looked to several what are called Bible dictionaries, and the definitions, all of them were paragraphs long. So I tried to come up with a basic definition that we can use. So here's a basic definition of propitiation. It's to make atonement specifically in regards to appeasing the wrath of another. Now, the reason a lot of folks in the church avoid using the word propitiation is for the very reason that it involves the concept of appeasing wrath. They don't want to talk about that. Mo many people are afraid to preach about a God who has wrath towards sin and towards sinners. And maybe they're afraid that this type of language they think won't make people want to come to church. That's one reason. Or... They think it makes the gospel less palatable. That means harder to swallow, harder, you know, less tasty. 
Um, another reason is that many people have wrongly separated what they will call, well, there was the God of the Old Testament, and then there was Jesus, the God of the New Testament. And they will say things like this, well, you know, uh, God was always angry and rigid in the Old Testament, and then Jesus came along in the New Testament, and Jesus is all about love, and so on like that. Now, that belief or that attitude shows a very dangerous lack of understanding regarding the gospel and God's eternal plan of salvation. And frankly, it's slander against God to say that. It's, it's, it's heresy, really, because that's not what it is. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And Scripture teaches that Jesus the Word was with God in the beginning. Jesus himself testified that he and the Father were one, that all that the Father told Jesus to say and do, he did. And do you know who spoke about hell more than anyone else in all of Scripture? Jesus. Jesus did. He wanted people to know that hell was real and that, so that they had been warned about it. And, and we can't say that, well, there was this one God in the Old Testament and somehow Jesus you know, made him nicer or something like that. That's, that's, that's not good. And it's not true because God is love, but he also has anger against sin and sinners. Wrath. And wrath arises logically from God's character because we know that he is a holy God. And a holy God must be opposed to sin. He must be angry with it to hate sin. And wrath against sin and sinners is not at odds with the other characteristic of God, the other attribute of God that we say God is love. Wrath against sin and anger about sin and anger against sinners does not negate his loving character any more than a parent who is rightly angry with their child in the moment at the same time continues to love the child if the child's been defiant. Wrath against sin and love for people are not opposed. God has hatred towards sin, and he has anger towards sinners, but that does not mean that he does not love. The Bible teaches that God is long-suffering towards sin and towards sinners. That means being very patient. And yet, even the patient one will at some point come to the end of their patience. In Scripture, we see examples of how God's wrath is applied to people. He sent the angel of death into Egypt. God sent the angel of death. His wrath was then carried out by an angel. And in Acts 12, 23, when Herod was being praised by the people and he didn't give glory to God, and it says God sent an angel to strike Herod down. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that the saints will judge the world in the end. So individual humans also are then a part of God's instrument of wrath and will be at times. And then sometimes entire nations like Assyria and Babylon and Rome, are instruments of God's wrath. But the greatest display of God's wrath towards sin is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is the sacrifice that's effective for us. That is the propitiation. Many things happen in the atonement on the cross. There's justification where we're made legally righteous. Uh, Jesus' righteousness is imputed onto the believer and our sin is imputed onto him. And then in the atonement, we also have healing, which we know for, was prophesied in Isaiah 53. 
And all of this represents the love of God that he sent his son for this purpose. And yet we cannot go astray and join those in the church who want to ignore the fact that God indeed has wrath towards sin. And that his wrath is only appeased by the shedding of blood, which was first done through the sacrifices of animals and for those of us who believe in the blood of Christ. We see a summary of this in Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, could they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so, of course, we know Jesus then went and was our sacrifice. So, so God has wrath. That wrath towards sin began with Adam. And the wrath will end with the great white throne judgment. You can read about that in Revelation 20 if you like. Those who want to avoid using the word propitiation, sometimes they replace it with, as I mentioned earlier, the word expiation, or some of them just say atonement, which is much more broad term that doesn't necessarily um, speak to the wrath issue. And the reason they're usually doing this, again, is because they don't like the idea here that God has wrath towards sin. It doesn't sell very well, they think. And so you see, that is the part of the gospel that is offensive to people. See, people don't want to be told they're sinners in the first place. And they certainly don't want to be uh, thrown in with that, the wrath of God. And so people get angry about this. They'll love it, by the way. If you talk about Jesus all day long, as long as you're just talking about good morals and kindness and the way he loved people, you you will be fine with that. But the moment you talk about sin and wrath, you will become very unpopular in many circles. And unfortunately and sadly, some of the circles where this has become unpopular consider themselves to be evangelical churches. But propitiation is a perfectly good word to describe one of the elements of what happened on the cross, the atonement. Jesus' sacrifice turned away God's wrath from sinners. And that's what propitiation means. I want to give some quick examples of propitiation in Scripture. Um, Moses' prayer for the people uh, so that God's wrath would turn away from them in the desert. Uh, Jacob, when he sent presents ahead in the convoy to Esau in Genesis 32, was trying... He was worried that Esau was angry, right? So he sends uh, a convoy ahead of him with all these presents and, uh, in order to appease Esau's anger. And then David actually, uh, there's an example of this which is an interesting one in, in uh, uh, 2 Samuel 21. So David's trying to make atonements with the Gibeonites, which was a people group that Saul had tried to destroy. And so David gave seven of Saul's sons over to the Gibeonites, and they hung them. And after that, God responded to David's plea for the land that the drought would end. 
So that was a, an example of propitiation as well. Proverbs 16, 14 says a king's wrath is a messenger of death and a wise man will appease it. And then there's some New Testament references to propitiation. Uh, we have the one from our text this morning in 1 John uh, chapter 2, but also in Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And in Hebrews 2, 17 to 18, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation turning away from wrath for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then again later in 1 John in chapter 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. So it's interesting that in that last one, rather than separating God's wrath from his love, John says, no, the love is that he himself provided the propitiation. They don't have to be separate as though God has some dual character. He's saying, no, the love of God is revealed in the fact that he himself provided the propitiation. He had wrath towards sin and loved us enough that he provided the way for his own wrath to be appeased. Isn't that nice? Atonement then comes through blood. Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement. So what does it mean when John says, also for the sins of the whole world? Now that's a tricky one. Well, it means that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to provide forgiveness for the whole world. Does that mean it was effective for everyone? Is everyone saved then? No. <laughs> We've been through this before, this idea called universalism, where people, you know, there's some people that think everyone gets saved eventually, whether they received Christ or not. And if they didn't receive Christ, then, uh, you know, they have a purgatory situation where they'll finally burn off their sin, and then in the end, everyone's saved. But we know that's not true. That's not what Scripture tells us. No, Christ's uh, sacrifice was sufficient for all sins, but it was not effective for all, since not all will turn to Christ with a saving faith. So again, the big idea big, that uh, Jesus, Christ is the right, Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate and propitiation. And finally, the third point is that believers keep the commandments of Jesus. In John's other major writing here, uh, in John, the Gospel of John, 14, 23 to 24, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So in his gospel, John quotes Jesus that if you love me, you'll keep my commands in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 15, and then here, in 23 and 24, if you keep my word, same thing. Now, John says this is how we know him if we keep his commands. And this gets back to what John was writing in chapter 1. 
We need to walk in the light. That is, we need to learn the commandments of God and do them and to walk in them. We won't know those commands unless we search to find out what they are. Inquiring minds want to know, right? And I believe one of the evidences of true regeneration is a desire to know God's will and to do it. Not to be ambivalent about it, not to be worried, um, and, or, or to be not even worried about whether Jesus demands anything of us or not. John Piper wrote a good book that was called something like What Jesus Demands from the World. I think that was the title. And he goes through methodically all the commands of Jesus in Scripture. Now, they're not requests. They're demands. And if we claim him as Master, Lord, and Savior, then we obey him. And John is telling us that if, if it's clear, if we don't uh, it's clear that we don't obey perfectly, And since we don't obey perfectly, then we have to do what? Confess our sins and be forgiven. And remember that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is so we don't get discouraged and pressed down by the weight of our sin and guilt. After all, he already took our shame and guilt on himself. So John doesn't want believers to sin, but he knows they will. And reminds them that when they sin, they should confess it. That is, to agree with God that it is sin. That includes the sin of commission, that is, doing something we know we shouldn't, and the sin of omission, that is, not doing what we know we ought to do. Either way, when we confess that sin, he restores our relationship with him. When we did the Conquer series last year, I think the presenter said something to the effect that the prayer God always answers is the prayer that says, God, show me the sin in my life. Is that right, Scott? I remembered it right. Okay. <laughs> but so this is, th- that's an interesting point to make. And the, the point is that we need to be on top of these things regularly. And, and so Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate and propitiation. So just a recap of the points. Believers have an advocate in Jesus, and you can't have a better advocate than Jesus. Believers avoid God's wrath in Jesus. Say it with me, propitiation. If you say it too fast, too long, and too many times in a row, you'll sound like you've been drinking. And finally, believers keep the commandments of Jesus. Believers keep the commandments of Jesus. And let us not forget that to keep those commands, we've been given what? A helper. The Holy Spirit whom Jesus gives to us who believe. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to do it. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word this morning and for the wonderful writings of John who writes in clear language for us. Lord, there's challenges here for each person, whether we are believers in Christ or whether we're not. Lord, I pray that each person who hears this message that by your Holy Spirit and through your word, Lord, you would do a work in all of our hearts, that we would learn what it really means and how we're supposed to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.